Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I'll go ahead and skip all the niceties today and get straight back into this episode. This is the second part of a two-part case. So if you haven't listened to episode 252 yet, pause this, listen to part one first, and then come back. We left off in part one at the point where the investigation into the murders of Don and Marianne DeVardo was just about to get started. We went over the details of the crime scene, and now we're about to get to the detectives and their look into the DeVardo's three adult children, Janet, Jimmy, and Jeffrey. Investigators wanted to speak to the siblings down at the station, starting with Jeffrey. He said that he had no idea what happened to his parents and had no information about who might have done this or who would have wanted them dead. And it seemed as though the alibi he provided was pretty ironclad. We know that he worked at Boeing, right? That facility is pretty secure, and everyone who comes and goes from the building is accounted for. You have to check in and check out with your ID cards. So if you're inside the building and a crime happens, well then, for damn sure, it wasn't you. I don't know if there is anyone out there who has ever worked in this type of building where security is very important because they're dealing with lots of classified stuff. I haven't. And if any of you out there have and you don't want to talk about it because then you'd have to kill us, I get it. But when I worked at the preschool in Seal Beach, California for about four or five years, it was a school that was located just a couple of miles away from the Boeing plant in that city. And if you're from the area, then you know what building I'm talking about. And there were a few parents who worked at Boeing who had their kids enrolled at the school. And one of the moms was talking to me once about the building and how they have to be aware of things like espionage and the building being bugged. Like there are certain areas inside the building that are more sensitive or vulnerable to stuff like that. So the carpeting all throughout the building are color coded. So if you're in a certain colored zone, you absolutely cannot be speaking to anyone about anything related to Boeing. Well, and the reason why she was telling me this is because sometimes the employees would get a little bit lax about the areas where they were discussing things. And if anyone saw any other employee making any carpet color code violations, it had to be reported. And if you didn't report it and you are seen witnessing the violations, everyone, including the witness, would get in trouble. I don't know what brought the topic up between me and this mom. I just remember her telling me this. So anyway, Jeffrey did not work at the Seal Beach Boeing plant. He worked at the one in Long Beach, which isn't too far away, but I would imagine that it has the similar protocols. So Jeffrey's alibi. He said on the day investigators believed that the DeVardos were killed, which was Wednesday, March 31st, 1999, that he was signed in at work. They contacted Boeing and requested a copy of their employee log for that day and just as Jeffrey had said, he was signed in to the building at the time the murders took place. So they were fairly certain at that point that they could eliminate him as a suspect because he was apparently 500 miles or 800 kilometers away at the time that his parents were being killed. But the investigators were still kind of hung up on the timing of his arrival at his parents' house. So when he was pressed about that, 
Like, how is it that he just so happened to show up right after the bodies of his parents were discovered? Well, he said that he had been trying to get a hold of his mom and dad for several days and was unable to do so. So he had been growing more concerned with each passing day that his phone calls were going unanswered. So he decided the only way for him to figure out if everything was okay was if he made the trip north to check on them for himself. And he had picked up his sister after he got there from the airport and they just went together. So when investigators were searching the DeVardo's home, they found out that about four months earlier, Jeffrey's parents had written him a check for $30,000 and they wanted to know what was the reason that they did that. Jeffrey admitted to the detectives that he had fallen behind on his mortgage payments and he said that his mom and dad had offered to loan him some money to help him catch up and told him to take however much time that he needed to pay them back. So, with all of their questions for Jeffrey pretty much satisfied, investigators went ahead and let him go about his day and sort of marked him off as being a potential person of interest. After they spoke to Jeffrey, they next questioned Janet down at the police station to see if she had any useful information to help them with the case. Janet was still very much in a state of shock, just as she had been when she arrived at the scene of her parents' murder. She was just completely beside herself, totally confused, and had absolutely no idea who would want to do something like this to her mom and dad. However, she did bring up the problem that she had with her former husband, Jean. And when she told them about what Jean had done to her two small dogs, I mean, this raised all sorts of red flags for the investigators. They absolutely believed that anyone capable of doing something as violent as what he did against an animal is totally capable of an act of violence against a person. So here they are thinking that they're onto something and they continued to pepper Janet with questions about her ex-husband. She told them that during the marriage, he did have a very violent temper, but she was under the impression that he was still a patient at the mental health facility. She was not aware that Jean had just been discharged right before Don and Marianne were murdered. He had been sentenced to nine months at the facility for what he did to her dogs, so he should have still been in there when her parents were killed. But unbeknownst to Janet, Jean was let out three months early which was more than enough time for him to have been involved in the murders. And with that, Jean became the prime suspect. The next person investigators spoke to was the DeVardo's middle son, Jimmy. He was told about his parents' death and was asked to come in to answer some questions. When he was asked where he was on March 31st, he said that he was in San Francisco working. But the thing about that was Jimmy was the only one of the three DeVardo children who lived close enough to be able to visit them pretty regularly. In fact, he was just about there every weekend, but he insisted that he had no reason and no motive to want to murder his parents. But you know, in situations like this, there can always be a simple reason why kids murder their parents, and it almost always has something to do with money. But other than suspecting that the killer was someone known to the DeVardos, investigators really had nothing else to go on for the time being. All three of the DeVardo children were cleared and free to go after they were questioned. 
and all of them vehemently insisted that they had nothing to do with their parents' deaths. So next, investigators decided to go ahead and take a closer look at Janet's ex-husband, Gene. He had been the only one to have displayed any sort of violence in the past, and it was possible that he held a grudge against Janet and her entire family. I mean, if he could do what he did to Janet's dogs, he could certainly do what was done to Janet's parents. So when it comes to means, motive, and opportunity, so far, he's two for three. They only needed to find out if he would be able to account for his whereabouts on the day the DeBardos were killed. When investigators sought Gene out, he was actually surprisingly willing to talk to them. And his alibi is not as good as being locked up in a mental health hospital, but it was pretty darn close. He told investigators, yeah, he has this thing that he did that was pretty violent, but he didn't have anything to do with Don and Marianne's murders. And if they wanted to give his parole officer a call to go right ahead, he provided them with his PO's phone number and told them that on the day of the murders, he was in a meeting with his parole officer in person in Southern California. So it was impossible for him to have been at the scene of the murders hundreds of miles away. There is no way he could have been in two places at once, and his parole officer confirmed that Gene was indeed in his office on the morning of March 31st. That revelation was pretty surprising. The investigators had been convinced that the killer was somebody in the family, and Gene appeared to be the only one who fit the bill based on his violent past, and the fact that he made no secret about the fact that he had a pretty strong grudge against the entire DeVardo family, he made for a good suspect. It was disappointing for the investigators to have to cross Gene off the list. There was just no getting around that alibi. It could not have been him. And from there, the case of the DeVardo murders was at risk of going cold. Investigators just had no other direction to go once Gene was eliminated so they were back at square one. And everyone was back to being a suspect again. The daughter, Janet, who had just got divorced, and she was the oldest, and she stood to gain from her parents' inheritance. Middle son, Jimmy, he was the one who resided the closest. He was the one who spent the most time at the lakeside home. Could he have possibly wanted to make that his own home? Or perhaps it could have been the baby of the family, Jeffrey, who had recently found himself in over his head with this new marriage and mortgage that was sinking him financially, and he had recently borrowed $30,000 from his parents. Investigators were going to have to keep digging and hope that they get that one thing that was going to be the break in the case that they needed. Well, that break did eventually come in the form of Don DeVardo's own sister. She would be the aunt to Janet, Jimmy, and Jeffrey, right? So she contacted police, and this had been within a year of the murders. But since the investigation had seemed to have stalled out, she felt compelled to reach out with some information that had kind of been bugging her with the hopes of breathing some life back into the case. And her information had to do with her nephew, Jeffrey, the DeVardo's youngest son the one who borrowed the $30,000. 
When Jeffrey was questioned by police about the loan, he told them that he was in arrears in his mortgage. But the sister told investigators that Jeffrey had told his parents a whole nother story that was completely off the wall, like a fairy tale. And they seemed to believe it, apparently. Remember I mentioned earlier that it wasn't like Don and Marianne DeVardo to just give out large loans to their kids like that, especially if the reason the loan was needed was because they were living beyond their means. If they wanted a large purchase, they were going to have to save up for it and to find something more affordable. They wouldn't bail their kids out of irresponsible financial decisions. So if Jeffrey came to them with a story about being in arrears in his mortgage, they would have likely told him to sell the house that they weren't going to bail him out. So Jeffrey needed to come up with a story that didn't involve him being in a financial mess. And boy, did he come up with a doozy. So Jeffrey told his mom and dad that he was in a terrible bind, telling them that this was pretty much a matter of life and death. He told them that he was absolutely forbidden from telling anyone this type of top-level classified information. But he had to, because, he explained, for many years, he had been working as an undercover operative with the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA. The whole job thing at Boeing was just a front. That he's a super-secret agent guy, right? And in his role as super secret agent guy, he was an arms runner for the government. And because of the super secret incident where he almost blew his cover, he lost a large chunk of the goods that he was running. And he needed to come up with some money very quickly in order to cover the losses because they've threatened his life. If he doesn't come up with the funds within five days, they were going to kill him. And it seemed as though his parents bought it and they loaned him the money. So when the investigators heard this rubbish, right away, the red flags again start flying everywhere. This was the break that they had been looking for. There was no way that this outlandish story had any merit. And they were certain that they've now got that lead that they'd been waiting for. All they had to do was make a few phone calls and find out right away that everything Jeffrey was telling his parents was a bunch of BS. He never worked for the CIA, so once they confirmed that, they knew that they needed to double back and take another look at Jeffrey and what was going on in his life at the time his parents were murdered. Because money, after all, is one of the biggest and oldest motives out there. So investigators began talking to people who were close to Jeffrey, his inner circle, friends and acquaintances, to find out more about this guy and these crazy stories that he's telling his family. So on top of telling people that he was in the CIA, he also said that he was an Army Green Beret and a Navy SEAL. So he was going for the best of the best in all the branches of the government. But Jeffrey's lies weren't limited to what he did for a living. He also told massive lies about his health. He told several people that he had terminal cancer. And all of it, all of these lies were ways of trying to get money and sympathy. He would tell either these outlandish stories where he's in 
of financial life or death bind or in desperate need, or he was telling people that he was sick and dying. So people would be either willing to loan him money out of the goodness of their hearts or to let him slide on his obligations to them in money that he had already previously borrowed. Everybody that Jeffrey knew, every friend, every business associate, all of his friends, all of his wife's friends, all of his neighbors, everybody who knew Jeffrey, he owed them all money. The amounts of money investigators were finding that Jeffrey owed to people was staggering. But then as they continued to dig, they found out where all the money was going. And it was just another aspect of this man that had just everyone's mind blown. Jeffrey had two wives. And I'm not talking about getting married once, divorced, and then married for a second time. But married and then married again. He skipped the whole divorce step. He was married to two women at the same time. Wife number one, Jan, she was the one who was noticeably missing at the DeVardo's anniversary celebration. If you remember towards the beginning of the story in part one, I told you that the wife Jeffrey showed up with, number two, her name was Molly. She was someone no one in the family had ever met before. Jeffrey had never mentioned her. He never said that he married her. He never said he had gotten divorced because he didn't. Even after he and wife number two tied the knot, he never bothered to untie the knot with number one. But anyway, as juicy and as scandalous as this may be, it doesn't necessarily mean Jeffrey murdered his mom and dad. But, you know, this sort of junk always seems to go hand in hand with murder. I look at the Murdoch trial that's going on right now. If the motive is what the prosecution says it is, that Alec, however the hell you say his first name, Murdoch, however the hell you say his last name, murdered his wife and his son to distract from all of his financial indiscretions, it really does seem like these things tend to escalate as time goes on. And eventually, these guys just for somehow, some way, land on murder. Needless to say, investigators on the case really needed to take a good hard look at Mr. Jeffrey DeVardo. Now, the thing that initially got investigators moving on from considering Jeffrey as a potential suspect was the fact that he seemed to have a pretty airtight alibi. So they were going to have to look at that before anything else. It, because if he was at work in Long Beach, California during the time that it was believed that the Vardos were killed, then that lead is dead in the water. Remember, Jeffrey was an employee at Boeing. Being in a building as secure as that, there won't be any getting around an alibi like that if Jeffrey was actually there. When they initially took a look at his work records, he said that he was signed in at work. When they checked, sure enough, he was on the log for that day. But the first time they checked, they called the office and whoever it was that provided the information over the phone took a look and saw that Jeffrey was in during the time frame that they were concerned with, so investigators moved on. This time, however, investigators flew down to Long Beach and went into the Boeing offices in person. And based on what they saw, they came to find that there was little in the way of security in the lobby. Nobody is really physically watching people coming and going from the building. 
So as it would turn out, this airtight alibi that Jeffries seemed to have had suddenly sprung a little bit of a leak. I'll talk a little more about Jeffries checking in and out of work and the specifics of all of this a little bit later on. So as the investigation into Jeffrey was gaining some momentum, investigators came to find out several bits of interesting and implicating pieces of information. In further talks with other members of the DeBardo family, they found out from Janet that Jeffrey told her that the mortgage on the house that he owned with his first wife, Jan, was in the arrears and that he was going to need to borrow $50,000 in order to catch up. When Jeffrey disclosed this information to Janet, he also asked her to not say anything to his second wife, Molly. Their brother, Jimmy, also revealed to investigators that Jeffrey told him in November of 1998, about four or five months before the murders, that Jeffrey needed to borrow about $25,000. The siblings both described Jeffrey as being very upset and distraught over the situation that he had found himself in, saying that he was on the verge of losing his house, and if that happened, that wife too, Molly, was going to divorce him. In the court documents pertaining to this case, it had stated that Jeffrey had made some kind of financial move involving the house that he bought from Molly in Valencia, where he had falsified some documents. And I'll talk more about what those falsified documents involved a little later on also. But isn't it beginning to feel like Jeffrey's problems go a little bit beyond just twenty-five dollars or $50,000? I mean, that is a lot of money, but it's not a terribly huge amount of money. But whatever it is that's going on with Jeffrey, it seems to be significant enough for him to be super worried about upsetting wife too, Molly. Which leads me to think that Jeffrey had made it out to seem to her that he's worth more, had more, and made more than what he's really worth, had, and made. After the murders, Jimmy had changed all the locks on their parents' house and the only people who had keys to it were Janet, Jimmy, Jeffrey, and the lead detective on the case. So about two and a half months after the murders, on June 18, 1999, Jimmy had gone to the house, and when he did so, he found a black trash can filled with shredded Bank of America documents, which weren't previously there. He also found some folders that were missing from the file cabinet that was located in a downstairs bedroom, and he also found a light brown briefcase that had belonged to his father, which Jeffrey had told investigators was missing from the home that had suddenly reappeared. About three weeks later, on July 6th, Jimmy came back to the house again and found that that black trash can with the shredded documents was gone, along with some other things around the house that made it obvious to him that someone had been there. The following month, Janet and Jimmy went to the house to do some more cleaning when they discovered an empty file folder with Jeffrey's name on it. All of these things, of course, is circumstantial. And, you know, to me, it seems like it's obvious to Janet and Jimmy that whatever was going on with the things being taken, moved or removed from their parents' house, that their younger brother, Jeffrey, was involved. Backing up a little bit, on March 30th, 1999, the day before the murders took place, Jeffrey brought his car into an auto repair shop located in Long Beach, California, 
at around 8.05 that morning. He requested a tune-up and an oil change, which, when investigators asked, said that they were told should have taken about two hours at the most. However, the parts that were needed to complete the work didn't get ordered until the following day, March 31st, the implication being that Jeffrey said that there was no need for the work to be done that day, that he wasn't in a rush to get the car back. And Jeffrey, in fact, did not pick up his car until 11.09 a.m. on April 1st, a little more than two days after he initially dropped it off. Going back to the morning that Jeffrey dropped his car off at the repair shop, March 30th, records show that Jeffrey went to an Alamo car rental outlet two blocks from that repair shop and rented a Ford Escort. The transaction for that car rental took place at 8.25 a.m., 20 minutes after dropping his car off. The odometer at the time Jeffrey rented the Ford read 1,701 miles. When Jeffrey bought the car back, which was sometime after 9.25 a.m. on the morning of April 1st, the odometer was not checked at that time. But it was when the vehicle was next rented that the odometer reading was 2,829 miles, which comes to a total of 1,128 miles. This was another piece of circumstantial evidence that Jeffrey was the one who put those miles on that rental car. The distance from his house in Valencia to his parents' house in Lake County was 463 miles. The distance between the car rental place and the Lake County house was 523 miles. The round trips would have taken between 926 miles and 1,046 miles, more than enough for Jeffrey to have made that round trip from either one of those locations in that rental car. The lead detective on the case made the trip himself from Don and Mary's house to Jeffrey's house. He drove between 60 and 70 miles per hour and made one stop for gas. The trip took him six hours and 45 minutes. A round trip would have taken a total of 13 and a half hours. So Jeffrey claimed that at the time investigators believed the murders to have taken place, that he was at work in Long Beach. But based on what they found at his work in the Boeing building, it would have been pretty easy for him to have been away from his office for an entire day without anyone noticing. In 1999, Jeffrey's work schedule at Boeing was 6 a.m. to 2.45 p.m., and he worked in Building 75 of the complex. Employees who arrived at Building 75 after 6 a.m. were let in by a security guard. If they arrived earlier, they had to scan their security badges in order to gain entry, which would leave an electronic record of everyone's comings and goings. Boeing's records show that Jeffrey scanned into work using his badge on Monday, March 29th, Tuesday, March 30th, and on Thursday, April 1st. He did not scan his badge on Wednesday, March 31st, the day of the murders. According to work records and Jeffrey's supervisors, his attendance around that time was spotty at best. It had become a chronic problem in early 1999. Jeffrey was frequently absent from his office for entire mornings and afternoons, so it would not have been unusual for him to be out of his office for one or two days, and it was highly likely for those one or two days 
to go unnoticed by everyone else. His supervisor confirmed this information for investigators. Jeffrey was absent a lot from work, and it had gotten to the point where they didn't even notice whether or not he was there, and the supervisor admitted that that could have been the case on the day of the murders. When it came to Jeffrey's computer in his office, it was left on all the time, you know, it probably just went into sleep mode, but it was never fully shut off. When Jeffrey's computer was examined by forensic analysts, they found that there was no activity for most of March and early April. His computer was not used at all on March 31st. So that is neither here nor there, because even when he wasn't gone murdering people, he wasn't exactly at work working either. There wasn't any computer activity on March 31st, but there really wasn't any computer activity in general because he wasn't showing up for work and when he was, he wasn't working. The investigation also dove into Jeffrey's personal life. He and his first wife, Jan, had gotten married in 1980. They had a daughter they named Nicole in 1988. Jan and Jeffrey separated in 1989 and Jeffrey was ordered to pay child support. It was sometime in 1993 or 1994 that Jan had learned that Jeffrey had gotten remarried, which was surprising because they had not gotten divorced. When Jan confronted him about it, Jeffrey did what he does best and he told her some BS story about this being a spiritual union, that he was terminally ill with cancer, and that he was about to die soon and didn't want to die alone. Jan eventually did learn that the marriage wasn't merely spiritual, that he had actually gotten married, and it turned out that Jeffrey had introduced Molly to Jan during the time that she was pregnant with their daughter, but in what capacity they were introduced in was not really made clear. In 1993, when their daughter was only five years old, Jeffrey stopped making his child support payments. The home that Jan lived in with Nicole was almost foreclosed on, twice, but she managed to avoid losing the home by borrowing money from Jeffrey. In late 1998, Jan was facing foreclosure for the third time, and remember, Jeffrey asked his parents for the loan of $30,000 in late November of 1998, which they gave him because they were led to believe that his life was in jeopardy. Jan ended up losing the house and ended up moving in with her parents in January of 1999. By 1999, Jeffrey and Jan's daughter was 11 years old. Per their parenting plan, Nicole spent every Wednesday night and every weekend with Jeffrey. But on Wednesday, March 31st, the day the DeVardos were murdered, Nicole went on a camping trip with a friend and therefore was not with Jeffrey. He had been told the previous Sunday, March 28th, that he would not have his daughter that week on Wednesday so he was aware that he would have a whole week off from parenting time with his daughter. Jan ended up filing for divorce in June of 1999, three months after the murders, and the divorce became final the following March of 2000. At this point, the investigation into the murders was still ongoing, and Jeffrey was not yet in custody or charged. That would be still another year out. There were plenty of other lies going on in Jeffrey's life. He wasn't just lying to wife one, wife two, his daughter, his sister, his brother, his parents, and to police. He was lying to everybody that he knew about everything. 
He approached a friend in April of 1998 named Ken Ferguson. This would be a year before the murders. He was distraught and crying, claiming that he needed $10,000 in order to pay off some debts. Otherwise, he was going to lose custody of Nicole. Ken Ferguson had just lost his wife the year before in 1997 of cancer and was the recipient of $150,000 from a life insurance policy. As Jeffrey cried about needing money and losing custody, Ken did fail to see any tears forming, but because Jeffrey had put on such a performance that day, Ken agreed to loan him a little more than $10,000. Throughout 1998, Ken tried repeatedly and unsuccessfully to get Jeffrey to pay him back, with Jeffrey telling him that he was working on it, that he was going to sell a house that he owned, and that he would soon have the money. Later on, Jeffrey told Ken that he was diagnosed with cancer caused by exposure to Agent Orange when he served in Vietnam, that he was one of the last survivors of his platoon, that they had all died of cancer. On another occasion, Jeffrey told Ken that wife number two had found out about a gun deal gone bad, and he basically told him the same story that he told his parents, that his life was in danger. Jeffrey was crying and having a breakdown about Molly threatening to leave him. And then there finally came an incident that was a last straw for Ken. In May of 1999, two months after the murders, Jeffrey had driven over to Ken's house to discuss the loan, ostensibly. Jeffrey had parked his car some distance away from Ken's house, but Ken could see him. He appeared to be fumbling around with something in his car. He looked like he was very nervous and upset and was shaking violently as he walked towards Ken's house. And while he was standing on Ken's front porch, Jeffrey clutched his chest in a dramatic manner and said that he was dying of cancer and didn't understand why his good friend was treating him this bad. I guess this bad was asking for repayment of the loan. Eventually, Jeffrey left and Ken had frankly had enough. He contacted Molly and told her about the loan and this dramatic scene in front of his house, and Molly ended up repaying the loan to Ken herself with the cashier's check. In 1998, Jeffrey borrowed $54,000 from a friend named Doug Bernards, telling him that he could repay the loan when he sold a house that he owned. The loan was secured by a second trustee on the home that Jeffrey and Molly owned in Valencia. This is where we get into the falsified documents that Jeffrey was involved in related to the house that I mentioned earlier, which investigators found out about. Jeffrey, for once, actually repaid this loan in three installments starting in November of 1998, and the third one being on March 1st, 1999. Remember, Jeffrey borrowed the $30,000 from his parents in November of 98. Doug Bernards did not know that Jeffrey was paying him back with money that he financed, the first two payments being a total of $40,000. Jeffrey financed the third payment to Doug Bernards with a second mortgage on his Valencia home. Jeffrey at first told Doug that he did not want Molly knowing about the loan, but told him that she did learn of it because of the second trustee and the second mortgage. The trustee appeared to have Molly's notarized signature, but it turned out that all of that stuff was falsified and she did not know about the second trustee or the second mortgage. A friend of Don and Marianne's reported to investigators that they were told by Don and Marianne that 
Jeffrey had come to them in need of money in late November of 1998. They told this friend that Jeffrey told them that he had been involved in some sort of government service and in connection with that work because of some kind of transport of money or goods that some of the money was missing. The DeVardos told that friend that they were going to loan the money to Jeffrey, but that loan was going to be documented and he would be charged interest. The DeVardos actually took out a short-term loan for that $30,000 and secured it with a CD account that they owned. When they got the money, they wrote a check to Jeffrey. He then in turn endorsed the check and it was deposited into an account owned by Doug Bernards, the guy he owed $54,000 to. On April 9th, 1999, three days after the bodies of the DeVardos were discovered, their bank withdrew the $30,000 plus interest from their CD account in order to pay off the loan plus interest. If the DeVardos had not been killed, this would have been incredibly upsetting to them. And come to find out in the weeks leading up to their murders, they had been putting a great deal of pressure on Jeffrey to repay the loan before that money was withdrawn from their CD. But since they were dead, they weren't around to get upset about it. The investigation also revealed that Jeffrey's aunt, his dad's sister, had been contacted by Jeffrey. He was extremely upset and told her that he was in trouble. He said that he had forged Molly's signature on a second trust deed and needed $26,000. He told his aunt that Molly stopped sleeping with him. I mean, boo-hoo, right? And he was afraid that she was going to divorce him. I just can't believe this guy is going through all of this trouble and stress and nonsense for this woman. It's absolutely crazy how desperate he was to keep her from leaving him. The day after Jeffrey told his aunt about the trouble that he was in, he brought his mom and dad to visit her and her husband. It was then he told them the whole story about being an undercover CIA agent. And his exact words were, he did it for the thrill of it. He said that he sold guns to foreign governments and that he had received a $5 million shipment, but the shipment was $200,000 short. He said that he was able to make up $150,000 of the missing cargo with gold bullion and gems that he received for his services with the CIA, but it was still $50,000 short. He told his mom, dad, aunt, and uncle that if he didn't come up with the money by November 30th, 1998, that he was going to be killed, so he said. During the telling of this tale, Jeffrey again sobbed tearlessly, and his aunt's husband didn't buy the story at all. Nonetheless, as they sat there talking to a dry sobbing Jeffrey, his aunt and uncle tried talking to him about some options that he might have when it came to obtaining a loan, but they never really heard any more about it from him after that. One of my favorite things about these cases, streamers, and guys like Jeffrey DeVardo, is how they think that they could outsmart the police. Now, this case we're talking about here happened 24 years ago, right? People probably still had it in their minds that they could just tell the police whatever they wanted to tell them, and the police would just believe what they said with little to no follow-up because they seemed credible. And that kind of is what happened here for a little while with the DeVardos because 
When Jeffrey told investigators he was at work at Boeing, they made a cursory look into it. They contacted his work by phone. And on the surface, the records seemed to show that he was there and Boeing is a pretty legit and secure company. But when they got the information from his family about some massively ridiculous lies that he had been telling, they decided they needed to take a closer look. And they found a bunch of stuff that contradicted Jeffrey's story, starting with the signing into work. When Jeffrey checked into work on Monday, March 29th, Tuesday the 30th, and Thursday, April 1st, he scanned using his electronic work ID card. And that's because he showed up before 6 a.m., before the security guard came on duty. If he had shown up for work on those days after 6 a.m., he would have been able to have been checked in to work by the guard, and a handwritten log of his arrival would have noted that the time that he came in. That handwritten log appeared to indicate that Jeffrey did come into work on Wednesday, March 31st, the day of the murders, but it turned out that the log had been tampered with, and it just so happened to be the only day of the week that week that Jeffrey did not use his electronic card to check in. And because of his sporadic attendance record, the security guard likely would not have really noticed the randomness of Jeffrey's showing up, not showing up, using his ID card, or signing in manually with the guard. I mean, don't you just love it when people say things to police at the onset of an investigation and it comes back to bite them in the butt later on when evidence is uncovered that proves that they were lying? These are the exact reasons why people are told to get an attorney from the very beginning. Because you never know what police are going to find once they have a chance to go through all of the evidence. It's like happening right now with that Murdoch trial that I mentioned earlier. In both of these situations, we have a very close family member being questioned about their whereabouts when what they were doing at the time the murders of their loved ones took place, right? Alec Murdoch, I mean, seriously, he thought that he could outsmart the investigators because he's so arrogant and so full of himself and so used to getting away with stuff. And granted, if he had lawyered up that night that his wife and his son were shot to death, it would have looked very suspicious. And he probably felt like he would be able to pull it off on his own by being able to talk his way out of anything, right? Well, as it turned out, Alec Murdoch's whole entire story got blown to smithereens because of a video his son was taking right before he was killed. Alec said that when his wife and son went out to the dog kennels on their property, he was asleep on the sofa, and then he got up to go visit his mom, right? Well, it turned out his son was taking a video of the dogs with his phone at the time that Alex was supposedly asleep on the sofa, and lo and behold, Alex's voice was captured on that very video, completely obliterating the story that he had told the officers the night of the killings. So now, as this trial is going on as we speak, Alec Murdoch is having to backtrack, roll back, and admit that he lied and changed the story to fit the evidence. I mean, what an incredible moment for investigators to have heard Murdoch's voice on that video that his son took. And that, my friends, is why they tell you no matter what you do, you never speak to police without your attorney. If it makes you look guilty to lawyer up, so be it. You never know what dirt the police are going to be able to dig up on you. And that is pretty much what's going to happen here to good old Jeffrey Two Wives. 
He was interviewed on several occasions by detectives investigating his parents' murder. He, of course, denied having anything to do with killing them. He said he was at work every single day from Monday, March 29th through Friday, April 2nd, and that he was at work on Monday, April 5th as well. He claimed to have last spoken to his parents the weekend before Easter. That would have been Saturday or Sunday, March 27th or 28th. But when investigators took a closer look at his phone records, those records suggested that he had only left a message for his parents on their answering machine. Jeffrey claimed to have not seen his parents in about a year. He claimed to have borrowed the $30,000 from them on one occasion and then another $10,000 on another. He said his parents had recently forgiven the $30,000 loan and he told detectives that he needed the money because of quote-unquote bad business decisions. Whenever detectives spoke to Jeffrey, he appeared to be overcome with emotion and crying, but like with everyone else who Jeffrey whined like a baby to about his money problems, they also noted that there were no tears to be found. And among the lies that he told to detectives, he also told them the one that he told his parents, that he worked for a covert agency, that he led a five-man team that delivered guns and explosives in exchange for gold, diamonds, stocks, and bonds, I mean, this guy's got a lot of nerve, right? Even Casey Anthony would be like, dude, come on. Jeffrey tried telling the investigators that one of these shipments that he was responsible for came up $200,000 short and that he borrowed the $30,000 from his parents to help cover the losses. But then in a different interview with law enforcement, Jeffrey contradicted his own stories by denying working for a covert agency and that he had visited his parents once or twice in early 1999. Some of Don and Marianne's financial documents were found during a search of Jeffrey's home on July 14, 1999, three and a half months after the murders. They also found a letter from an insurance company showing that Jeffrey had filed a claim to his parents' life insurance benefits. So, if all of this stuff sounds a little bit too circumstantial, fear not. The linchpin of the case would turn out to be that kitchen towel mentioned a couple of times back in part one. I mean, the circumstantial evidence in this case is pretty good, but the bloody towel really brought this case home. I'm not sure how many DNA profiles were found to be on the towel, but what I do know is that at least one of the profiles from the blood evidence on that towel came back as a match to Jeffrey. So yes, while he was stabbing, slashing, and beating his mother and father to death, somewhere in the chaos, Jeffrey injured himself, leaving behind irrefutable evidence that he was, in fact, present and bleeding at the crime scene. Two years after Don and Marianne DeVardo were found dead inside their home on April 9, 2001, their youngest child, Jeffrey DeVardo, was arrested and charged with murder and elder abuse. At the time, he was facing a possible death sentence. While Jeffrey's defense team had their work cut out for them, they did have some pretty significant arguments to refute the prosecution's case against their client. The two biggest points of contention would be the day which Don and Marianne were actually murdered and the evidence involving the rental car. All they needed to do was plant that reasonable doubt in the minds of the jurors and there was a good chance that a conviction would be out of reach. I've gone over all of the reasons and the evidence that investigators came to believe that the murders took place on the morning of March 31st, 1999. 
Jeffrey's whereabouts were definitively confirmed on all the days surrounding that specific date, but on that day itself, it was the only day that Jeffrey did not scan his Boeing ID card to get into work. He manually signed in, and prosecutors believe that the evidence showed Jeffrey had tampered with the log in order to make it appear he was in the building at the time of the murders. It was pretty obvious to everyone that the DeVardos had been dead before April 4th because the clocks in the house had not been adjusted for daylight savings time that weekend. The last time anyone saw the DeVardos, I saw a blog that the DeVardos were last seen on the morning of the 30th and in the court documents it indicated the 31st. But either way, both of those were early enough for the prosecution's theory to fit. The couple last accessed their email accounts on the morning of March 31st. They never checked their mail that day. And in addition to that, the voicemail messages left on their answering machine had messages starting on the morning of the 31st. All messages prior to that had been cleared out. There was also the clock that had fallen and stopped working at 1025. The coffee that had grown the mold. There was just lots of stuff that the DeVardos would not have left in that state. They would have picked up the clock. They would have rinsed out the coffee carafe and the mugs. They didn't do those things this time because they were dead. The prosecutors had that car rental evidence. They had the DNA on the wadded up kitchen towel. Prosecutors believed that the means and the motive and the opportunity all lined up to prove that Jeffrey was the one who was responsible for these murders, the motive being financial. He wanted to not have to pay his parents back and he wanted to collect on their life insurance and their inheritance, and he wanted to continue to hide the fact that he was committing bigamy. And to go a little further into that, he was like super in love apparently with Molly and was doing everything under the sun to cater to her every whim. When he bought her that house in Valencia, he had to borrow money from everybody that he knew in order to come up with the down payment. And from there, Jeffrey had a pattern of borrowing from others in order to pay off previous loans. I mean, this guy is like a walking Ponzi scheme. And Molly apparently knew about none of it. Not until their friends started telling her how much money Jeffrey actually owed to them. Jeffrey's attorney argued, of course, that their client didn't do it. He was not at his parents' house on the morning of March 31st, and his work records at Boeing proved it. They entered into evidence the login sheets for the company meetings that were held on that date, and Jeffrey's name was included on the list. At least one Boeing employee was called to testify and stated that those time logs would have only been available at the time of the meetings and that Jeffrey would not have been able to gain access to them once those meetings were over. But the witnesses also had to admit that it would have been possible for Jeffrey to have not been present at the meetings and nobody would have noted his absence. I'll talk more about these meetings and the login sheets a little bit later on because they're not as airtight as they were made out to be by this defense witness. One of the things that Jeffrey did that could place him in Southern California on March 31st that could not be refuted was a 6.30 p.m. phone call that he made from the home that he shared with wife number two to her place of work. If Jeffrey killed his mom and dad around 10.25 a.m., if we accept that that is the time the clock fell off the wall and stopped as a result of a life and death struggle, 
then there would have been plenty of time for Jeffrey to have made the six hours and 45 minute drive back down to his parents' house. If the jury believed what the defense put forth regarding Jeffrey being present at work the morning of the murders, then it would have been impossible for Jeffrey to have been the killer. They would also have to suspend other aspects of reality and coincidence and discount the 1,128 miles racked up on the rental car, the rental car that Jeffrey just so happened to have obtained the morning before the murders and returned the morning after the murders, and they would also have to discount the blood DNA evidence that came back as a match to Jeffrey. The defense had somewhat of a valid argument refuting the car rental evidence and it involved the record keeping policies with the company that Jeffrey got the car from, which was Alamo. The defense actually came up with two examples of rental records where it indicated for one that a car had been rented out a day before it was actually rented out and then they were able to show that another vehicle had less miles on the odometer than what was shown on the car when it was returned than when the customer had first rented it out. So if this happened to Jeffrey, if either one of those situations with the car rental record keeping happened in his situation, then it could be a viable explanation for the additional miles that were being attributed to him. And then we would have to believe this to be an astounding coincidence and that Jeffrey was the unluckiest defendant ever. The average person doesn't really drive that far in a day or two in a car. So let's be real. The only ones who drive more than a thousand miles in a day are people like Jeffrey and Jody Arias, perhaps. When it comes to Jeffrey's blood being at the scene on that kitchen towel, the defense called up an expert who testified that there is no real way of telling how long blood is left on an item or when it was deposited. So again, we have to suspend reality and believe in coincidence. And we have to believe that Jeffrey, who at first denied being at his parents' house in over a year prior to the murders, who then rolled back on that statement and said that he may have visited them a couple of times in early 1999, which leaves open the possibility of him having been there in January, February, or March, as they were killed on the final day of March, and Jeffrey somehow found himself bleeding in his parents' house and then ended up dealing with that blood in an upstairs bathroom using a downstairs towel and then left that towel in the sink. And then the DeVardos just decided to leave the towel in the sink for however long they left it there, never bothering to clean it up or wash it or even throw it away. I mean, if I found a rando bloody towel dried up in the sink and had been there for however long, I would want to grab it with a pair of tongs and toss it and the tongs into the trash bin. Another thing that played into the defense was the fact that a roll of film that captured images of this bloody towel in the sink somehow went missing. In a blog post that I read about the DeVardo's murders, it said that the investigators on this case were relatively inexperienced when it came to cases such as these which may explain why they turned to the FBI for their expert analysis. This blog post also said that the lead detective on the case was a rookie and that the DeVardo's murder was only his second homicide case. 
The defense also called their own forensic pathologist to testify that the DeVardo murder did not take place on March 31st, which would have been the only day that Jeffrey would have been available to commit the murder based on his questionable attendance at work and the car rental records. The problem was that neither the neighbor who found the bodies nor most of the officers who first entered the home noted the smell of human decomposition. Their defense expert said that the condition of the bodies and the lack of odor was an indication that it was not possible for the DeVardos to have been dead for six days as the prosecution was claiming and that they were killed a few days after the 31st and that would be during a time frame when Jeffrey could be placed in Southern California definitively. There was at least one person who responded to the scene that did smell the decomposition, but it wasn't as overwhelming as those who have encountered it have described it as being. In the end, the jury was able to look past the decomposition evidence and the fact that Jeffrey's name was not only listed as being signed into the building, but also on work meeting logs that if he was present at those morning meetings at Boeing, it would have made it impossible for him to have been at his parents' home during the time the prosecution said the murders took place. They looked past it all. And just before Christmas of 2001, the jury found Jeffrey DeVardo guilty of two counts of first-degree murder with a special circumstance of this being murder for financial gain. They also found him guilty of two counts of elder abuse. And while the prosecution had initially indicated they were going to be seeking the death penalty, by the time the trial rolled around in October of 2001, they took it off the table. In May of 2002, Jeffrey was sentenced to two life sentences without the possibility of parole. Today, Jeffrey is 65 years old. He is serving out his life sentence at Mule Creek State Prison in Ione, California. So far, all of his appeals have been denied. I couldn't find whether or not they'd been exhausted. So, dreamers, full disclosure, this is one of the few cases where I may have a tiny little bit of reasonable doubt if I was a juror. I mean, you know me, I'm always like, they're guilty, 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 right? Let's start with the bloody towel. The lead detective assigned to the case apparently didn't see the towel in the sink, or he overlooked it. And the roll of film that contained pictures of the towel had gone missing. Those are two pretty big problems. And to me, it's really one of the strongest, if not the strongest pieces of evidence that they had against Jeffrey. And here, the chain of custody is being challenged. It feels like that bloody glove moment in the O.J. Simpson case, right? One bloody glove was found at the scene where Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman were stabbed and its mate was found outside O.J. Simpson's mansion a few miles away. Because the glove at Simpson's mansion was discovered by then-detective Mark Furman, and then Mark Furman would end up getting caught red-handed on the witness stand lying under oath when he denied ever using the N-word, when Simpson's attorneys were able to present recorded evidence of him doing exactly that, using the N-word numerous times among other racist and misogynistic things. And because Furman's credibility had been completely destroyed by the Simpsons defense team, it threw into question Furman's involvement and integrity in his role in the investigation into Nicole and Ron's murders. 
the implication being that since he so openly and freely said such racially charged things that he knew were being recorded on audio tape and then tried to cover it up by lying about it on the stand, then that means you can't trust anything he said or did related to the case against Simpson because Furman is a proven racist, Simpson is black, therefore we can't put it past Furman to have planted those pieces of evidence in order to frame Simpson for the double murder. Even though we know that it would have been virtually impossible for Furman to have one, known that the glove contained the DNA of the victims and Simpson, two, that Simpson was going to be a prime suspect in the killings, two things that Furman could not have possibly known that early on in the investigation, and three, to have been able to pick up the glove from the crime scene, transported it to Simpson's house, and planted it without having anyone notice. Furman may be a lying, racist, misogynist, and he may have been the one who hopped the fence at Simpson's mansion in order to let the older, soft-around-the-middle detectives onto the property, but he certainly is not any type of shape-shifting super ninja. And I'm not exactly sure how the Simpson jury got it so wrong, but this glove planting, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit debacle, certainly didn't do the prosecution any favors. And that's kind of where I'm getting reasonable doubt vibes here in the DeVardo case. Admittedly, this is one of their best pieces of evidence against Jeffrey. But the lead detective's relative inexperience investigating homicides was being put on full display for everyone to see when he missed seeing this bloodied piece of evidence in the upstairs bathroom and for that roll of film to get lost like that. For me... This could have brought about some serious Mark Furman level credibility issues and that if it doesn't fit, you must acquit moment that this case was searching for in terms of the defense. On the flip side of that, it doesn't diminish the fact that the bloody towel was found. It was collected, bagged and tagged by a criminalist, examined by a forensic expert and found to have Jeffrey's DNA on it. All of that still happened despite the lead detective having overlooked the evidence and the crime scene analyst losing the role of film. I also find myself having some reasonable doubt bouncing around in my big empty head when it comes to the rental car. And believe me when I say that I will be the first juror in the deliberations room to stand up and be like, 1,128 miles? Yeah, he's guilty. Let's go to lunch. But with the record keeping being so dodgy, it really would have to have you thinking twice about how reliable can this really be. Did they record the wrong mileage when they issued the car to Jeffrey? And did he really put that many miles on the car? Could they have recorded the wrong mileage when they issued the car to the next person? But on the flip side of that, it doesn't take away from the fact that Jeffrey DeVardo rented a car in the first place the very day before his parents were killed, for some work to be done on his own personal vehicle that should have only taken a couple of hours, unless he told them to not rush, to take their time, etc., etc., which I've done too because I know that the auto mechanics get walk-ins for simple stuff like oil changes or whatever, and they want to sit in the lobby and wait. So if I drop my car off and I don't need it for the day and I get a ride home, I'll just tell them to just text me or call me whenever it's ready. But that's also because I hate waiting in the lobby of a repair shop. 
It's one of the things that I really can't stand doing, so I'll almost always go home if I can. But I'm sure as hell not going to go get a rental car. And therein lies the problem with this whole thing. Jeffrey went and got a rental car and had it for the exact amount of time that he would have needed to get to his parents' house, kill them, and get back home. And he probably got back when the rental car place was closed. It's been a long time since I've rented a car, but I looked it up, and mind you, I live really close to McCarran International Airport in Las Vegas. So there's several car rental places over there by the airport that are open 24 hours. But the ones closest to me, they're either closed today because it's Sunday, or they close either at 6 or 7 p.m. He wasn't going to be able to make it down to Long Beach in time to turn the rental car in that evening. Jeffrey made a call from his home in Valencia to his wife's work at 6.30 p.m. on March 31st. That's the evening the murders took place. I'd say that the city of Valencia is about an hour away from Long Beach, which is where Jeffrey rented the car from. And that would make it an hour further away from his parents' house because it's pretty much a linear drive south. He made it to his house at 6.30 he wasn't going to be able to make it to the car rental place in time to turn it in. So he turned it in the next morning. I mean, that's so stupid, right? If you think about it, why would Jeffrey rent a car to begin with? Maybe he didn't want any of his parents' neighbors to recognize the vehicle and report it to police. Okay, I'll buy that. But in a way, it probably would have served him better if he would have just taken his own car because at least that way, There was no one keeping tabs on the odometer reading, which either by coincidence or purely bad luck just happened to rack up around the exact number of miles that Jeffrey would have needed in order to make that round trip. The blogger who wrote about this case also took issue with the timesheets at Jeffrey's work, pointing to the two witnesses who said that those sign-in sheets would not have been available to Jeffrey to tamper with that the only time that those timesheets would have been available to him were the times that he would have been at those meetings that he had to be present in order for him to have signed in on them, which would effectively provided Jeffrey with the solid alibi for the morning of the murders. But here's the thing for me about that. The person who would say that those sign-in sheets were supposed to have been secured and kept under lock and key would have really had to maintain those papers were kept in that way. And if those records aren't kept secured or if they weren't kept secured, if Jeffrey had been able to get to them and tamper with them, then that would mean that these keepers of the sign-in sheets were doing less than acceptable work at keeping these things secured. I just want to put it past Jeffrey to have been able to get to those records and doctor them up in order to create his alibi. We know that Jeffrey is one to mess with documents. He tampered with documents at his parents' house. He took file folders. He shredded papers. And then he tried to cover things up, not only at his parents' house, but also with wife number two. He took out a second trustee and a second mortgage on a house, and he forged and falsified documents in order to do so. I mean, the guy got married twice without getting divorced. This guy was not above fudging paperwork everywhere he went with anything that he got himself involved in. And what we have to understand, what's really important to understand about this, when someone is trying to do something so seriously wrong as murdering their own parents and then are trying to cover it up, 
that person is going to spend every waking minute in the aftermath obsessing over it. And Jeffrey, he was at the management level at Boeing. He most likely had access to whatever pertained to him. And if he didn't, then we have to remember that Jeffrey is consumed with covering up what he had done to his mom and dad. And the biggest thing that he had going for him was his alibi. Jeffrey had scanned into work using his ID card every single day around the day of the murders, with the exception of the murder day itself. So he was there, thinking, planning, plotting, obsessing. And I seriously doubt anyone was guarding those sign-in sheets as if they were being kept in the Tower of London. Remember, Jeffrey is consumed with tampering the paperwork in several areas in this case. And the Boeing files were among them. And I absolutely believe that he would not have had a problem getting to them. The co-worker who testified that Jeffrey's name was on those sign-in sheets for those two meetings at Boeing on the morning of the murders said that the first meeting started at 8.30 a.m. and the second one finished at 9.50 a.m. That co-worker did not remember seeing Jeffrey at the meetings but was sure that he was there because his signatures were on the sign-in sheets and he told the court that it was not possible for Jeffrey to have signed those sheets and to have not been present. The person who kept the sign-in sheets for the department where the first meeting of the day was held testified that she kept those sign-in sheets in a binder above her desk. She worked alone at a desk in a cubicle. She kept those binders in a bookshelf that had a pull-down door that she did not keep locked. It would have been very easy for Jeffrey to go into her cubicle and put his name on the sign-in sheets for the March 31st meetings during a time that she wasn't at her desk. Two weeks after the murder, Jeffrey asked if he could see that sign-in sheet from that first morning meeting, and when he was given the binder, he looked at the March 31st sign-in and said, well, it looks like I was here that day. When Jeffrey was asked why he wanted to see the sign-in sheet for the meeting, he said that his parents were murdered on that day and he was trying to confirm that he was there. When he went to the department where the second meeting was held, also in April of 1999, he asked to see the sign-in sheets for those meetings. The chairperson of that department who kept those sign-in sheets in a locked cabinet gave Jeffrey the sheets to look at and while he was doing so, he told that person that his parents had been killed and he needed to prove where he was at the time. And let's not forget that there is also that pesky coincidence or bad luck as it were that the one day Jeffrey did not scan into work using his ID was the same day that his parents were killed. And let's not forget that it was Jeffrey who was the one out of the three DeVardo children to file the claim on his parents' life insurance policy shortly after their murders. There were a couple of other pieces of evidence that undercut Jeffrey's assertions about being at work or present for meetings. For example, the day before the murders on Tuesday, March 30th, Jeffrey was signed in at an 8.30 a.m. meeting at Boeing. But bank records showed that at 8.56 a.m. that same morning, when he was supposedly in a meeting, Jeffrey was making an ATM withdrawal at another location. 
What this does is it undermines the integrity of the sign-in sheets that Jeffrey needed to show his physical presence at meetings. There was also evidence that another person had signed Jeffrey's name for him on a sign-in sheet for an April 1st meeting. On another occasion, Jeffrey authorized his signature on a sign-in sheet over the phone. So all of this conflicts with that co-worker's testimony at trial that co-worker's insistence that a name on a sign-in sheet is definitive proof that the signatory was physically present at the meeting. I have to admit, dreamers, that I am slightly bothered by the lack of decomposition odor at the scene of the murders, but I feel like all the other circumstances surrounding the theory on the time of death makes the most sense, that they were killed that morning of the 31st. The moldy coffee, the last time they checked their email, the newspapers and mail piling up starting on the 31st, the last time the neighbors saw the DeVardos, how nobody was able to get a hold of them by phone, they didn't observe daylight savings time, the daughter had called for a welfare check, that they both died at the same time. All of that matches up to them being dead on the morning of the 31st. And while there doesn't really seem to be a definitive explanation as to why the odor of decomposition wasn't overwhelming to people when they walked into the house, there is a plausible explanation. The court documents outline how the weather outside could have likely had an effect on the rate of decomposition, which would make sense as to why the bodies weren't further along in the process of decomposing. We know that the thermostat in the house was set to 74 degrees Fahrenheit or 23 degrees Celsius. If the bodies were in a room that was at that temperature, then they would have been more decomposed than they were. But when we take into consideration the location of Don and Marianne's bodies within the home, the ambient temperature around them could have been much colder than 74 Fahrenheit or 23 Celsius. It snowed during the night of March 30th going into the 31st, the day that they were believed to have been murdered. There was at least an inch of snow on the ground that morning. Dawn's body was found inside the laundry room, a room that is not heated and was next to the garage, which was also not heated. And this area of the house was closed off from the living room, meaning that it was likely the temperature around Dawn's body would have been much colder and this would have slowed down decomposition. Marianne was found on the floor in the living room near the front door, and there could have been a cold air draft coming in from under the door, which would have lowered the ambient temperature around her body as well, also slowing down decomposition. Heat also rises, so it would have just been cooler down on the ground in general. The forensic pathologist did agree that when it comes to body decomposition, the best way to determine the date the person died is to examine other circumstances, such as newspapers not being collected or the last time anyone saw the victims alive. When you take all of this into consideration, along with the plethora of lies, I mean, these were not little white lies that Jeffrey was telling he was in the CIA, that he was a super secret agent operative spy guy, that he was an international gun runner who got paid in gold and gems. I mean, he was telling this junk to the police as if, right? 
He must have seriously thought that he was the smartest guy in the world and the rest of us just fell out of a stupid tree and landed on our heads. And I know, I know, just because Jeffrey's a liar doesn't mean he's a murderer, but I mean, come on. Lies like this? He's probably a murderer. The totality of the circumstantial evidence tied it all together in the end. The evidence showed that the DeVardos were killed on the morning of March 31st and that it was Jeffrey DeVardo who killed them. They were never seen. They never answered the phone. They never looked at their email. They never picked up their mail or their newspaper. They never cleaned up the coffee that they had that morning. They never picked up the clock that fell onto the ground that stopped at 1025. They never observed daylight savings time. Despite the fact that medical evidence regarding the time of death was inconclusive, all of this circumstantial evidence is consistent with the prosecution's theory that they died on the morning of the 31st. There was no sign of forced entry. The scene was believed to be staged by both lead detectives and FBI experts, and it was done so in order to divert attention, and that a stranger to the DeVardos would not have gone through all the trouble of the staging. And all of this is consistent with the killer having been somebody known to the DeVardos. The morning of the murders, Jeffrey, usually he wakes up by 4 a.m. And that morning he would have had enough time to drive the six hours to his parents' house to murder them by 10.25 a.m. Then to drive back down to Southern California where he made a phone call from his landline at 6.25 p.m. Jeffrey had already secured the rental car the day before. He knew that he wouldn't have his daughter that day because she went camping with friends. He knew his wife would have business meetings that evening and wouldn't be home from work until later in the evening. Jeffrey claimed to have not been to his parents' house for more than a year, but his blood was found on a wadded up kitchen towel in the upstairs bathroom sink in the home of his parents who were known to be completely and totally meticulously clean and tidy. It could not be substantiated that Jeffrey was at work in Southern California in the Boeing building the morning that his parents were killed. He exhibited an unusual amount of interest in the sign-in sheets for March 31st, and he could have signed them at a later time as proof of his supposed presence at those meetings. Jeffrey had a spotty financial history. He was in constant need of money. He owed large amounts of money to several people, including his parents, and that loan his parents took out was secured by one of their CD accounts, was set to automatically be paid back with that CD account just days after they were killed, which it was. The money plus interest was withdrawn, but by then the DeVardos were dead. Of the three DeVardo children, Jeffrey was the one who applied for the life insurance claim shortly after the murders. He was proven to be a liar over and over again. He appeared to be very unstable, but yet when he cried, he was never able to produce any tears. He claimed to numerous people that he was dying of cancer caused by Agent Orange, that he was a super secret agent, a gun runner for the CIA, and that he made money in gold and gems. All of this lends to Jeffrey's credibility or lack thereof. And when you put it all together, whatever doubt is raised by the bloody towel, the attendance records, the time of death, or the rental car company's record keeping, I think for me, the doubt just isn't reasonable enough. Jeffrey's financial house of cards was about to come crashing down and for some reason, his solution was to kill his mom and dad. It's very perplexing, just like Alec What's-His-Face Murdoch thought that he would be able to detract from his financial misdeeds by 
killing his wife and his son. I mean, I don't understand how these people think that that's going to make things better. But anyway, following the death of Jeffrey's parents, their two children, the two other children, the ones that didn't murder them, they decided to close this chapter of their lives permanently by selling the dream home on the lake that they all loved so much that their parents worked their entire lives to earn. And with that, we close the case of The Secrets of a Son, The Misdeeds of Jeffrey DeVardo. I appreciate and want to thank all of you who messaged me or commented on my post about the things that I shared with you at the beginning of part one of this series. It really means a lot to me to have all of you in my life to listen to the things I have to say. And I know that you know we will always have this safe place to come home to. I want to thank you for listening to this. Thank you for listening to me. I love all of you with all of my heart from the bottom of my heart. And as always, until next time, sweet dreams.